0: Let's go ahead and pray, and let's commit this, this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you that um, that you are a God who's very near to us. Thank you for your word, as we heard in the, in the last session. You stand by your word so that we can build our lives on it. Father, we do worship you as the holy, holy, holy God. I thank you that you are perfect in love towards us. Perfect in power, but perfect in love towards us as well. And Father, we pray that as we look at your word, that you would speak by your spirit to everyone's heart in the area of need, trust you to do this, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. It was late October of 1944 when an officer commanding a platoon of American soldiers received a call from headquarters. They were in France, and the order was to take his platoon and recapture this small French city. He'd also learned, this officer, that the French resistance had for weeks been risking their lives to gather information about the German fortifications in that city. And that that information was smuggled out to the Allies. So the, the, the French underground, those resistant fighters, uh, their efforts provided the Americans with something worth its weight in gold. It was a detailed map of the city. Now, it wasn't just a map with the street names of major um, uh, major roads and, and landmarks and all. No, it, s- it showed specific details of where those Nazi fortifications were. Where the, the defensive positions were, where the machine gun nests were, where the, the snipers were stationed. Block by block, they had written this out on a map. And so the captain, when he received this information, was so concerned that he, um, he passed on this map to his men and he had them study it in great detail. And then he quickly gave them a test regarding the map in all those different defensive positions to, because he wanted his men to be ready for that invasion when they were going to retake that city. And with the exception of a few, everyone got a perfect score on that little review test that he did to make sure they were ready. And as a result, when they did capture the city, was there was very little loss to the soldiers because they had studied the map. Now, about 30 years after that event, an army researcher who heard of the story decided to base a study on that particular operation. And the project was that instead of platoon soldiers, he would get some American tourists to come And for several hours, he had those American tourists study the same map that the soldiers had. And then they were given the same test. And you can guess the results. Most of them failed the test. They failed it. Now, of course, the difference between those soldiers... And those tourists could be really boiled down to this one particular attitude. And that was motivation. Motivation. Because those soldiers knew that they they had to know what that map said because their lives depended on it. You can't score lower than a perfect score because your buddy needs to know there's a sniper and there's a machine gun here and you need to know that. Whereas for these tourists, it wasn't a big deal, right? They're just going to walk around the city, no big deal. But motivation, these soldiers were motivated because they knew their lives depended on knowing that map. This morning we're going to be talking about motivation, I wonder, what is it that motivates you in your decisions, in your life? What motivates you? Perhaps you serve at your church. We're kind of thinking about motivation of life, but also motivation in ministry. Maybe you teach a Sunday school, which is great. Maybe you serve in the nursery, Maybe you have some other ministry there at at your church, and those are all great things. But what motivates you to serve, to reach out to others? What's your heart behind that? We're thinking about motivation. You know, some of you are also at a stage in life when you're making some really big decisions about life, considering about, well, where do I want to go to school next? Hopefully EI is an option you're considering, right? Um, but you're thinking, you know, what do we what do I want to do with the rest of my life? You're making some huge decisions that will impact the rest of your life. What's motivating you in making those decisions? What's driving you in those decisions? You know, we live in a in a culture where we're told what should really motivate us is what's best for our lives, right? When I went to college, I, I went to, to Clemson University, and um, yeah, go Tigers, right? <laughs> um, so I went to Clemson, and I just remember the, the whole environment there was basically work hard, make good grades, do some extracurricular stuff that will look good on your resume, and and do everything to make the perfect resume so that then you can get the perfect job. And the the end thought there is that if you ha- only had the perfect job, you'd have the most comfortable life and you'll have success and happiness. That was kind of the driving thought there. Just build towards this great resume so you can get a great job and do whatever, you know, you want with with the money that you have. That is motivation of all about yourself, That that's what's motivating there. But what should your motivation be in life? Well, we're going to look at a passage where Paul describes his motivation in, in ministry and serving, but really it's, it's all of his life. It carries over to every area of his life. And we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. So you can go ahead and turn there. 2 Corinthians 5. second corinthians chapter five and before we read the passage and get kind of caught up in some of the details of what's going on there and we're explaining through it let me give you a little bit of a background because i found when i don't understand the background it's hard for me to get into the text um, and especially so with the passage we're looking at here. If you don't get the background, it's just like, what is Paul even saying, and, and why is he saying it? It really doesn't make much sense. But here's the background. So Paul planted the church in Corinth. It, it talks about that in, in the book of Acts, and he was there for 18 months, at least 18 months, establishing this church. People were getting saved, and you know, this church was forming, so he was ministering. And he, he built up this church, and then he moved on. And over the course of time, there were all kinds of issues that popped up in that particular church among those people there, and some pretty big issues. And so Paul made some visits. He wrote a couple of letters. One of those is First Corinthians. And um, And so it seems like things were getting better. They were responding to Paul. Well, as Paul is away from Corinth, he hears about more problems there. And the, one of the, the main problems that was going on among those believers is there's these people coming in who wanted to lead the church, but they they weren't saved. And they wanted to, to lead this church. And, and so their strategy was let's attack Paul in his character and in his ministry. Because Paul had founded that church. And he was leading them even when he was away, writing these letters, making these visits and all. And so they thought, well, if we can discredit Paul and if we can attack his ministry, then we can lead the church. And, and so these false apostles, these false teachers came in and um they they seem to to say things like well paul has a secret agenda he's not genuine he's not sincere he's just twisting scripture and deceiving you if you read through the the rest of second corinthians you'll see kind of paul kind of answering these attacks in a way um they seem to indicate just if you look at this book that they perhaps were saying well paul's just seeking his own glory in ministry um and, and so they were attacking Paul and his character. And again, they knew if they can attack Paul and his ministry, then the believers will kind of push Paul aside and accept this new leadership here. Another aspect of these false teachers is that they really emphasize the, the outward appearance and the externals of religion. Uh, They seem to use their Jewish background as kind of credentials to make themselves look better because Paul later on talks about that and he says, well, I have Jewish heritage as well. Um, So it seems like they really emphasize that. These externals of religious things, they seem to really emphasize that. And we're going to see that even in our own passage where Paul seems to bring up the fact that they really emphasize religiosity in, in, in all these things. They seem to boast about performing these religious activities. So, again, Paul hears about this. He's not in Corinth at the time. And so he writes to them a letter. And that's what we have here. Second Corinthians is, is his response to these, these false teachers, bad leaders coming in. And um, imagine you're Paul, though. And you're being attacked. Your character and your ministry is being attacked. What's the right response? How does he defend himself? Should he defend himself? What's going to honor God the most? Well, Paul actually decides to defend his ministry and his character. But it's not the reason that you would think. Paul doesn't defend himself just to prove himself. No, because what Paul sees is what's at stake is the true gospel. Because he's taught the true gospel. And if these false leaders come in and say, Paul's not a great guy and his ministry's bad and don't listen to his teaching, then these believers are going to be deceived and they're going to be led astray by these false teachers and backslide. And so Paul sees this as much greater than just himself. This is the gospel and these believers living fruitful lives for the Lord. That's what's at stake here. And so he defends his conduct and his ministry. um, And we see that in this passage. And so um, we're going to be looking at verse 11 down all the way to verse 17. There's a lot in this passage. But the the particular point that he's addressing in this passage is his response to the fact that these religious leaders emphasize the outward appearance and the kind of the religious activities, the externals. And so he's kind of responding to that. And in so doing, he talks about why he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he care so much about these outward appearances? And he's going to really boil it down to these two reasons. One, motivation, because motivation is more important than just going through the motions. So he comes back to motivation, and then he comes back to how he has been completely changed. So in this passage, I want you guys to answer these three questions. So you can go ahead and pull it up. What did motivate Paul? How has Paul changed? And what truth both motivates Paul and has completely changed Paul? These, the motivation and the change are very much linked together. So what, what could be so powerful to motivate Paul and to change Paul? How has he even changed? Well, we're going to see answers to these questions as we go through this passage. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, starting in verse 11. And really what we're going to do is we're going to read through these verses and we're just going to talk about what we see and explain the different elements of these churches, or these verses. So, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. Okay, the therefore means he, what he's saying is based on something he's just said. And what has he just said? Well, if you look at verse 10, let me read that. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What's this judgment seat of Christ? What's Paul talking about? Well, it seems like what Paul is addressing here is how each believer is accountable To Jesus for the opportunities that he has to glorify the Lord on this earth. Each believer, now this is not the same judgment of unbelievers. For those who are saved, there's no condemnation in Christ, so they're not going to lose their salvation, but they are going to be judged based on the opportunities that they've been given. Have they glorified God in those opportunities? And so we are all held accountable. If you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're going to be held accountable to the Lord with those opportunities. So elsewhere, Paul writes in in Titus, actually, he says, be zealous for good works, not because they earn salvation, but because God has created them that you would walk in them that's second ephesians chapter 2 right we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works we're not saved for our good works but there should be fruit in our lives and that's the good works there showing that that Christ is living his life through us and so we're going to be held accountable and so Paul knows that and so he says knowing the fear of the Lord knowing that we're going to be held accountable he says this, we persuade others. Now, the natural question at this point is, what are we persuading others about? Well, Paul doesn't really say, does he? He doesn't. He just says, we persuade others. And this is difficult. Scholars go different ways with this. And, you know, is he persuading others, meaning he's sharing the gospel, that kind of persuasion, apologetics? is and it seems what's best to understand this and the best way to understand this based on the context is he's talking about we persuade others meaning we persuade others about the integrity of our ministry because he's defending his ministry and his character because of what Paul says next. God knows who we are. And so he's, he's saying, we, we persuade others, and again, Paul isn't super clear on this, but it seems best to take it that way. We persuade others to believe in our, in, in our ministry, in our character, that he's genuine, that he's not insincere, he's not twisting scripture. And so then Paul writes, but what we are is known to God. Not, God knows who, our, who, who we are and what's in our heart. Right? He knows why we're ministering. It's made manifest. It's, it's known to God. Even though Paul persuades men, God knows who he is. And he hopes, I hope you know who I am as well. Paul, Paul says there at the end, right? And I hope it's known also to your conscience. Your conscience is that indicator within you that when you do something, uh, if it's functioning correctly, it'll make you feel guilty because you, you do the wrong thing. Um, if you do the right thing, you're, you're okay. But if you do the wrong thing, you, you just, ugh, you know, um, like when you're playing sports, you maybe soccer and you throw out your hand, and you touch the, the ball, but the ref doesn't see it. But you know, it was a handball. And if your conscience is working correctly, you'll feel bad about it. And maybe say, ah, oh, you know, what? I got a handball like that's that's the conscience there. And he says, I, I hope you know that who I am deep down within me. looking at verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about it. He says, we're not trying to prove ourselves. That's commending the idea there. We're not trying to prove ourselves, but we're giving you a reason to boast. Why? So that you may a- may be able to answer those who boast. So here he's talking about these false teachers. Those who boast about outward appearance and not what about what is in the heart? So again, these false teachers—they're concerned about the externals and uh, and the outward portrayal of, of religion and, and all of that. And so Paul says, "Well, I want you to be able to answer them. You know, if you're there at church and these false leaders come and they start making accusations against me, and here's an answer that you can provide." there he wants them to have an answer and from here Paul's going to go on to explain his his motive but before that he talks about his conduct in verse 13 for if we are beside ourselves it is for God w- what does that mean beside ourselves um, has the idea in the Greek of being insane crazy Paul says if 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 you label me as crazy, it's for God. And again, we don't know what he's exactly referring to when he says, if people think I'm beside ourselves. Uh, It could be, you know, Paul had some visions. Um, Maybe that's what he's talking about. Uh, It could be that um, people are just saying, Paul, you're crazy in how you serve Jesus. Because if you remember in the book of Acts, there were some crazy moments in Paul's life where there was a riot. I mean, think about all those um, videos going around about protesters, you know. And, and imagine someone trying to go in there and calm them all down. I mean, that's what Paul wanted to do at one point. And, and people were like, no, don't do it, Paul. That's crazy. And another time, Paul gets stoned and left for dead. And what does he do? He gets back up and he goes back into the city. That's crazy. And so maybe that's what he's talking about. You know, If, if we're beside ourselves, another way it could mean is, is that sometimes, perhaps when he was speaking and preaching, he just got really emotional, maybe really into it. And if you were like, tone it down, Paul, you're crazy. Uh, maybe that's what it means. But But here's the thing. Paul says, he doesn't reject it. He doesn't say, no, I'm not insane or no, I'm not acting crazy. He accepts it, but he says, it's for God. That's between me and God. If I'm crazy, it's between me and the Lord. If we are in right mind, so contrast to being, you know, insane and crazy, he says, if we're in my right mind, which means to be in complete control, that's the idea of the Greek there, um, moderate, So Paul's saying, if I'm restrained and collected, it's for your sake. Notice what Paul's saying. It's either I'm living one way for the Lord or I'm living for others. Paul doesn't say anything about I'm living for myself, right? So he's explaining his conduct here. And it's for the sake of the Lord and for others of how he acts. So why does Paul act the way that he does? Well, look at verse 14. Paul's going to explain his conduct here. For the love of Christ controls us. This is so important. Let's pause and just meditate. Think on these words. For the love of Christ controls us. Now, again, this... In the Greek, it's not very clear as to how you could understand this when Paul wrote it. it. Could either mean the love of Christ for Paul, or it could be Paul's love for Christ. It can kind of go either either way, um, but most commentators, in a way, I, I think it, it really leans, based again on all. The other things that Paul is writing here is he's talking about Christ's love for Paul is what controls him. Christ's love, this this love. Did you know that in the Greek language they had several words for love? It's kind of like in, in our language we have several words for um, things that we drink from, like you can call it a mug. You can call it a glass, you can call it a cup, you can call it a solo cup. Uh, You know, we just have all these different words for the same thing, right? Well, the Greeks had all these different words for love, and they all had different, slightly different meanings. Um, I'll just mention a few. One of them was more of a, the kind of, when you're describing the relationship between friends... You would say they 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 like each other. They they're just good friends. They love each other in that way. Uh, that's one one word for uh, for love. Um, another way is like you know when a family loves one another. That was another word for love that you would use to describe those those feelings and emotions and actions for one another. It was another type of love. But what's interesting is about the word for love here is a word that was never really used too much in the Greek secular literature. And when the Lord led people to write the New Testament, and they were trying to describe the kind of love that God has for us, it was almost like, and and this probably wasn't what they did, but it was almost like they went through the list of the different other loves, and were like, yeah, no, it's not really that, no, no, no. Oh, agape. Yeah, that these all these other words for love just doesn't quite fit how God has loved us. And so they chose the word uh, agape to describe God's love. And in, in agape uh, it goes beyond just emotions, it has the idea of of the will. And, and a decision to act kindly and lovingly to someone else. And that's kind of the, the idea there, that agape, um, and, and that was just the, the primary way, the uh, word for for love that God loves. Now, there's other passages there that talks about God liking us, not just that he loves us. In, in John, there's another word for love, Greek word that that John uses, but... Um, consider First John 4, 9. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And He just had good feelings towards us? No. He sent His own Son to the, be the propitiation for our sins. And so agape love. It's God's love for us. It's, and so it's Christ's love for Paul... What kind of effect does that have on Paul? It says it controls him. The idea behind control is that of it presses in. It was used of travelers that were going through like a narrow passage. They couldn't go to the left or to the right. They just had to go through this, this narrow passage to get through. It's hemmed in on both sides. And so Paul is saying it's Christ's Love for me that it pushes me in one direction, in service to God and others. It motivates him in his service and really his whole life. Notice it's Christ's love that doesn't doesn't just make Paul emotional. He doesn't just cry about it. No, it actually changed his life. It made a difference in his life. And when I was studying this passage, it just, I don't know, I was so astounded by this. It's not so much Paul's love for Christ. Because I could see that being something that dictates your life, you know. Because I love Jesus, you know, I'm not going to do this. But but Paul says, no, because Christ loved me, it's someone else's love that influences Paul's life and changed his life completely. It made a difference. How could someone else's love for a person change that person so much? It's a powerful love. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf was a German noble who lived in the early 1700s. And this was said about him that when he was about your age, um, about late teens, he visited an art museum and while he was there, he saw this painting called uh, well, it was written in Latin, but the translation is "Behold the man." And it was a painting of, of Jesus, but being uh, crucified. Well, not quite crucified, but he's there on his way, and, and it's just his face. And you see these crown of thorns on him. You see the suffering that he's already endured, having been whipped, and he's on the way to the cross. And when Zinzendorf saw that painting it just it just captivated him because at the bottom of that painting what was written is it was written in Latin but the translation goes something along the this these lines this have I done for you now what will you do for me And, and Zinzendorf was so moved by the painting and thinking of Christ's love and these words that it, it just changed his life. And he vowed that day to dedicate his life to following Jesus. And of course, the Lord greatly used Zinzendorf. He was a great mobilizer in missions and getting the gospel out cr- across the world to people who hadn't heard of the love of Jesus, You see, the love of Christ controlled him, just like Paul. It controlled him. So, why? Look at the rest of verse 14. Because we have concluded this. Where do we see the love of Christ? That one has died for all. It's talking about Jesus. He's the one. That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. We, we see the love of Christ in his death and resurrection. Paul says Christ was, he died for all, meaning the, the, the four there has the idea of in the place of. Christ took our place on the cross. He took the death of. The punishment of our sins, we heard that earlier, right? With Mr. Brazier, the wages of sin, what you get for your sin, that's a wage, right? You work a job, you get paid for something. When you work the job of sin, you get paid death. And he died for all. He took our place. He died for all. Therefore, all have What does Paul mean all have died? He's talking about the union with Christ that believers have. That when when Christ died, we died with Him. That old sinful nature of ours, it died with Him. I've been crucified with Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. He's talking about the sinful nature of His it's been crucified with Christ. I think this illustration um, works well. I heard it from another speaker a number of years ago, but it's like when you mail an envelope and, and you put a letter in that envelope and you send it off and it goes through the whole postal system and there's a postal carrier that puts it in the mailbox, of, say your friend that you're, you're writing to, that letter experiences that rough journey as the envelope goes, right? It's in the envelope. So that the the letter experiences everything the envelope does as it goes from your house or your post office to your friend's house. We've been placed in Christ, united to Christ. So his experience is our experience. And we died with him. We've been placed in christ so he died for us and we died with him we talked about three questions that first question what motivated paul what would you say is the answer to that question what motivated paul Christ, yeah, Christ's love for Paul motivated, it controls me, it hymns me in, it puts me in this direction and it impacted his life. This is what has motivated Paul. And so, again, Paul's addressing these false leaders who care about the external things, And Paul cares about the heart and the motivation in conduct. And he's looked at Christ's death and his resurrection and his union with Christ, and it's impacted his whole life. So let me ask you this question. Does Christ's love for you motivate you to serve him and others? Is that the motivation of your heart? Isn't it true that we often are motivated simply to please others, maybe our parents? But do, are we motivated because of Christ's love for us? Does it cause us then to, yeah, I, I want to love you in return because of what you've already done for me. It's a response of love towards the one who's already loved us. Maybe you're thinking, you know what, yeah, I, I really don't have the right motives. What do you do then? Keep the cross of Christ before you. I was looking over some notes from when I was a student here at the school and um, in one of the classes one of the teachers mentioned, how do you cultivate your love for Jesus? And he boiled it down to really this. Worship and remembrance. That's how you cultivate your love. Worship and And remembrance. And at your church, your church should be helping you to do this. How so? Well, at my church, once a month, we take special time set aside to remember what Christ has done. Communion, the Lord's Supper. Part of the reason behind that is to remember what Jesus has done. So your church should be helping you. But it's not just do it once a month or however often your church does it. Maybe it's once a week. We should be remembering this all the time of what Christ has done. And as we remember, it's going to cultivate that love for Jesus. And, And it will change our hearts to love him even more. So, not only does Christ's love for Paul motivate him, we're going to see it's also changed him. Let's keep moving on. Verse 15. And he died for all. And he's going to go into further explanation of what it means that we've been united to Christ in verse 15. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This, This verse makes it so clear. There's really only two motivations in life. For ourselves or for Jesus Christ? It's really just two options. When you really boil it down. For ourselves or for Jesus Christ? We're either living selfishly or we're living for Jesus who's loved us and died for us and was raised for us. And of course, you might realize this morning, you know what, I'm, I'm really living more of a selfish life. I want to live for Christ, Here's the thing. You can't do it in your own effort. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. We have to come back to Christ. We can't change ourselves. He's the only one that can change us deep down in our hearts. And we cry out to him for grace and mercy to change us. We've heard it already. We have to be born again because we cannot change ourselves. can't just decide, I'm going to stop living for myself. It doesn't work that way. He's got to do that internal work within us and give us a new heart. Instead of us being at the center of our lives, Jesus Christ has to be at the center of our lives. And so Paul says, this Christ... Is died so that those who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now, this verse should look familiar. Does anyone recognize it? Yeah, it's the one on the back of our teacher. This is the theme verse for this conference. And for as long as I can remember, uh, it's, it's been on the back of the teacher. I don't know if it's always been there, but for many years. It's been on the back of our t-shirts. It's our theme verse. That's the great desire that we would be totally His. Not living for ourselves, but living for Him who loved us, died for us, was raised for us. So, this motivates Paul. But Paul has also been changed by this truth. Let's keep moving on here. In verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Again, remember, these false leaders emphasize the externals, not the heart. He says, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Again, um, notice the therefore in that verse. He's drawing a conclusion based on what he's just talked about. And we went over that. So he doesn't regard anyone according to the flesh or the outward appearance. He doesn't, basically what Paul's saying, he doesn't view people the same anymore. At one point he viewed Christ one way. He says, but we don't view him that way anymore. Now we don't know, did Paul actually see Jesus? Um, You know, Paul was in Jerusalem learning under a rabbi. I, I tend to think But we don't know based on scripture. But I tend to think that Paul probably saw Jesus when Jesus was ministering. Again, I don't know for certain. But I I just wonder if if he would have, he was so zealous that surely he would have wanted to know this other rabbi um, going around and causing so much controversy at that time. Um, But we just, we don't know. But he says, I once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but I don't regard him this no. Longer, You know, people viewed Jesus as uh, a failure. You know, he was the self-proclaiming Messiah that didn't deliver his people from the Romans. And, um, and perhaps Paul thought along those lines that, you know, he's not that political deliverer that we're all looking for. But he said, I don't think about him. I don't regard him anymore according to the flesh. No longer do I see him as as such. And so again, Paul Paul's saying, I, I don't view people the same anymore because I've I've been changed. He's been so radically changed. Look at what he says in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he says again, therefore, another conclusion. If anyone is in Christ, in right relationship with Christ, has a relationship with, with Jesus, is fellowshipping with Jesus. If, if, if that person, if there's anyone in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, but behold, the new has come. I, I think about this story um, that's been told about the, the early church father, Augustine, or Augustine, however you pronounce it, um, perhaps you've heard this before, you know, before he got saved, he was into a lot of sin. One day after he had gotten saved, um, he saw this, this lady who, um, used to be into all that sin with him. And when she saw Augustine approaching, she proclaimed, Augustine, it is I, <laughs> you know, <I'm> trying, um, <clears throat> so, uh, Augustine, it is I, <laughs> and, uh. And Augustine like saw it and just was like, (laughs) and he said, but it is not I. (laughs) The old Augustine was dead. That's not me anymore. I'm new. I'm a new creation. I'm a new creature in Christ. And of course that's the same with every believer. Not just Paul, not just Augustine. We are new creatures. We've been radically changed, totally changed, and it's a process, that's true. We're not changed completely. You know, there's the old flesh has been crucified, the power of it's taken away, but it's still present, right? Um, but it has no power over us. We are new creatures behold the new has come the the old way of thinking of judging on the externals selfish way of living Paul says that's gone it's been replaced I'm a new creature so how has Paul changed Well, he's changed in his view of people, but then he really goes on to say it goes even further than that. That change is is deeper. I've changed completely. I'm a new creature. I'm totally different. So, what made motivated Paul? His Christ's love for him has has influenced and changed his life, and how has Paul? been changed he's been changed into a new creation so let's look at that third question what truth motivates Paul and has changed him completely well did you catch it as we were going along what really is the center of of what he's been saying that's motivation and then based on this particular truth he's He has a new view of people and he's been changed, radically changed. He's a new creation. What's at the center point of that? What's the truth that has changed him? Again, it's Christ's death and resurrection for Paul. It's Christ's love for Paul and his union with Christ. That's changed Paul. It's given him a new motive. It's changed the way he views the externals because he's completely been made new, because he's been placed in in Christ. So in in closing, let me go back and, and ask you these these questions that we've we've already considered. What motivates you? What motivates your service? towards others. Do we just want to be nice people? Do we just want to please people? What should be our motivation? What was Paul's motivation? It was Christ's love for him that changed him. And it was his union, his being placed in Christ so that he no longer Live for himself because he couldn't change himself, but he was united to Christ and it made him just completely different person. He's a new creature. How has he changed? He's been changed completely. Have you changed? Have you truly changed? Is there evidence in your life that you've stopped living for yourself? and started living in response to what God has already done for you. Has this truth taken hold of your heart, just like it took hold of, of Paul's heart in his whole life? It wasn't just he thought about Christ on the cross, and it brought a lot of tears. And No, it, it just completely changed the trajectory of his life. All right, let's go ahead and close in, in prayer. Father... We thank you that we can cry out to you that you do a wonderful thing and that you transform us completely and it's not based on how much we can try to love you but you've loved us perfectly. You're holy in your love towards us. We thank you for the love of Christ that he would Become a human, that he would walk on this planet, and that he would go to the cross, taking our place, and that he was raised again. Thank you that you have united us to him. These are all incredible spiritual blessings that you've blessed us with, and we, we thank you. Father, I pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts. Forgive us in those times when we're motivated for different reasons that's, that's not for love for you and because of your love for us. So change our hearts in that way as well. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.